again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Here's an idea for you. Philosophy is entertainment. For many in ancient Athens, hearing, exploring, and debating new ideas was as popular as American Idol in its peak. And here's Paul with his moment on stage. Will he stay or go? Bart Garrett, lead pastor at Christ Church East Bay in Berkeley, California, starts the new series, What's on Your Heart? with this message entitled, The Mission of God, which covers Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Thank you for joining us today. My privilege now to uh, introduce uh, to many of you someone new, but to a lot of us, uh, one that we've known and loved for a long time, Bart Garrett. Bart has uh, served here in this church for nearly five years, four and a half, five years, from 01 to uh, through 05. Uh, served with our young adults and our gathering ministry, our young 20s and uh, later 20s and so forth age uh, ministry. Uh, Bart was loved here, and uh, many of you, many of you know the story well of his contribution to this ministry. I met Bart when he was uh, in college, a good friend of my oldest son. And while uh, we were talking through those years, I said to him then, I said, Bart, if you choose to go in the ministry, it looked like God's hand was on him. If you choose to go in the ministry, when you get out of seminary and your training, you let me know. I will do my very, very best to have a spot for you. And that's a decision we never regretted. So uh, it's been a treat, Bart, to have you come up. I want to pray for you. Bart's got wife Katie, three young daughters, and uh, a great church in the Bay Area, uh, Berkeley. And you'll hear more about that as Bart will say a few things. You can go on your bulletin, find more detail written about his background and so forth. But uh, let me pray now and look forward to you preaching again. Father, thank you for the first service today, how you used Bart. Thank you for the gifts you've given to him. And thank you for the heart that you've given him. And I pray now, bless him, that he might bless us. And we thank you for him. We pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you, Bart. Thank you, Randy. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's a... It's a tremendous privilege to be uh, back with you. To put it in perspective a little bit, it's been almost 10 years that I've been away. So uh, this thing called the Facebook was launched the year before I left. And the year after I left, YouTube.com was activated. Year and a half after I left, all the young kids started Twittering. Uh, Is that what you call it? Tweeting. Um, So it's been quite a while. Uh, Some of you will know my oldest daughter, Caroline, was three weeks old when uh, we arrived here uh, at Perimeter, and she has recently turned 13. Uh, Here's a picture of my family from a Memorial Day hike, and I was uh, recently talking to Caroline, and I was having one of those conversations a parent has with a teenager. I was really trying to get down on her level and talk with her lingo, and I was trying to make a counterpoint, and she interrupted me, and she was like, but Dad, you're old. (laughs) So here we are, older by a decade. Uh, For those of you who don't know who I am, if you're newer to Perimeter, uh, I'll let my first grader uh, give you the best impression. Uh, I was at her open house last week, which was uh, a look at her first grade year, and the teacher had put together a portfolio of all of their writing from start to finish so we could look at how they developed throughout the year. And her first or second writing assignment was, who is my family? And she drew a picture of the family, and then underneath it she wrote, my mom is sweet and kind, My two sisters let me play with them. My dad got pulled over by a police officer. (laughs) 
So who am I? I'm the old guy that gets pulled over by police officers. Uh, this teaching series has been entitled, uh, What is on Your Heart? And I would first say what's on my heart in being here is both admiration and gratitude. I said this uh, in Randy's presence last service, but I so appreciated uh, working with the staff here and working under his leadership because Randy uh, is a man of immense integrity and character. He's not just the visionary leader and the evangelist and the disciple maker. He's all those things, but he is someone who's le led a life that's a long obedience in the same direction. And also, uh, I just have immense gratitude to you as a congregation for a couple reasons. One, you put up with me when I was in my 20-somethings, and those of you who have 20-somethings working with you, you know, it's kind of like handing chainsaws to two-year-olds. They lop off appendages with their idealism and all that, so thank you. Uh, but also, not only for putting up with me, but for pouring into me, uh, giving me opportunity and experiences here, uh, investing financially, both as a church and many of you as individuals, to help us get started in the Bay Area. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I love this question. I'm glad they gave it to us in this guest teaching series, What's on Your Heart? It's such a better question than the one you often get. Hey, how am I doing? How are you doing? And you always answer, well, I'm fine. But what's on your heart is really a cataloging of your most pervasive passion in that moment, which becomes your mission. You know, if we were having coffee and I sat down with you and I asked you that question, I would hear on one hand about all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your prayers. I may hear on the other hand about your fears and your agitations and your anxieties, whether it be about singleness or marriage or parenting or your life's work. Uh, it's a great question to get at the pervasive passion, which in that moment becomes your mission. I had a friend uh, who swears the story is too true. He talks about a friend of his, a woman who owned a pet snake. And it wasn't just a little wormy garden snake. This was a, a boa constrictor. It was a huge snake. And she shared her bed with this snake. She was obsessed with this snake. And two or three weeks went by where the snake stopped eating. And she was really concerned that the snake had gotten ill. So she takes the snake to the veterinarian. And within a minute, the veterinarian said, you know, snakes of this size stop eating when they're getting ready to create space for a very big meal. <laughs> so the moral of the story is don't sleep with snakes. But it's also our pets, our loves, the things that we uh, seek to possess can uh, possess us. Our most pervasive uh, passion becomes in that moment our mission. And what we get with God's passion, when we ask the question, what's on God's heart? What we get is, is none of the anxiety and none of the fear and none of the agitation. We get his hope and his dream. And we see it very well in Acts chapter 17. You see it all over scripture, but I think this scripture will serve us very well as we talk about that. And I'd like to do something perhaps different for you, but just stand with me if you wouldn't mind as we read this text together from Acts chapter 17. Hear God's word. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. By one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out and set for them their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not very far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your very own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an object made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has come to judge the world with justice. By the one man that he has appointed. And he gave proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of them became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. This is God's word. May it fall fresh into your life today. You may take your seats. As we get into the question of the hour, what's on God's heart, just a brief word of introduction about this text. It's found in the book of Acts. Some of you will know that Luke, the apostle, wrote the book of Luke, which is really the story about Jesus. And then he turned and he wrote the book of Acts, which is the story about the church. And today is Pentecost Sunday. So Acts has been called uh, the gospel of the Holy Spirit. And Luke was uh, a writer of 25% of the New Testament with these two works. And what you also need to know is a little bit about the context uh, in Athens. I love this passage for a number of reasons. Uh, Athens was the foremost Greek city-state from about 400 BC. Uh, Cicero once said that everyone had heard of Athens, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. One historian uh, said this when he was writing about Athens. He said, even while in the Roman Empire, Athens exerted an intellectual independence and asserted itself as a free city. 
rare that a city so small would exert such global influence. So why do I linger here? Because Athens then is like Berkeley now. The intellectual free city of global influence. Founder of the free speech movement, the, uh, known as the People's Republic of Berkeley, the nuclear free zone. We're open-minded and we're free, free thinking. Maybe not as much as we think we are. We can be, politically speaking, ideologically constipated, which means we're either libertarian socialist or we're socialistic libertarians, which is another way of saying we want to have a law for everything so long as we don't have to abide by any of them, right? (laughs) Athens then is Berkeley now. But there is a real buzz around some of the latest ideas of the day, and you see it right here in this passage. The parenthetical, did you catch it in verse 21, was all the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And I walk into a Berkeley coffee shop at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 9 p.m., caffeine-induced conversation, a buzz. I told this story a couple years ago, uh, but I was preaching on Labor Day, so all of you would have been in vacation, so I can get away with this again. What I love about being in Berkeley is it's one of the only places on the planet where you can sit with your organic, fair trade, shade-grown, single-origin bean, free-range, (laughs) cage-free cup of caffeine. (laughs) And you can look out the window and you can see a guy walking by, and he's carrying in his hand a Bible. And then you could see another man walk by, and he's wearing nothing but a pink tutu. And then the guy sitting next to you will turn to you and say, was he carrying a Bible? (laughs) It's a beautiful picture of Berkeley because you get Berkeley and all of its weirdness, but you also really see that there is a certain um, curiosity and fascination around What could be a new idea? Christianity, the gospel, the story of God, the heart of God. And we get this in Paul's sermon. Now, a word about this little sermon you just heard. It's a 45-second sermon. And I know all of you would wish pastors today would preach 45-second rather than 45-minute sermons. But Luke is sort of telescoping this together. You know, this is the the Sparks notes or the Cliffs notes of this sermon. We already know that Paul was in other cities and uh, some places he preached so long people were falling asleep and falling out of windows and dying. So Paul can be long-winded like the rest of us, but in these 45 seconds, we get to the core of the core of the core. What is on God's heart, which is to say, what is God's pervasive passion, which is his mission? And here it is. The rescue of God's people for the restoration of all things. The rescue of God's people for the restoration of all things. Why was the Bible even written? Because God is a missionary God. Why did Jesus even come? Because God is a missionary God. But the rescue from what? And this is where we need to kind of Beep, 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 back up a little bit and start at the beginning. Theologians would talk about the four chapters of the story, beginning with creation and moving to fall and to redemption and then finally to restoration. And many of you at Perimeter will know this story. And this is where Paul camps in his sermon, beginning with creation, the God who made the world 
and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Which is to suggest that God is God. In the beginning, God, the subject of the cosmos. Moses, when he writes in Genesis 1, uses God as subject 42 times. So we'll get the picture. Before there was a creation in the beginning, there was God. Which is to ask, what did God do? Just sit around and waste time? Well, no, because there was no place to sit. There was no time. He just have all the time in the world? No, because there was no world. Was he just sort of sitting there daydreaming? No, because there were no days. The point is that God is what theologians call ase, which is to suggest he does not need anything or anyone. He is completely non-contingent and non-derivative. God is God, and God enjoys himself. It's the intra-Trinitarian bliss, the pulsating reality that ended up creating the cosmos out of his power and out of his love, out of the divine presence which was completely enamored with himself. He created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. And when Paul says he's the Lord of the heavens and the earth, what he's saying is that God owns it all. Whatever you look at under the lens of a microscope or at the far reaches of a telescope, there is creation. The tiny roots on a blade of grass. The specks of dust on a far planet. If God owns it all and he's the Lord of everything, then in your life there is no maverick molecule. And in the cosmos there is no lonely planet. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If we could uh, truncate Genesis chapter 1 and get through the first five days of creation, we would see that this is actually a poem that is crescendoing with these words, you and me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with you and me in mind. Everything was pointing to this moment. Humanity becomes the crown jewel of God's creation. The man first and then the woman. The pinnacle, ladies, the top. Everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with you and me in mind. Paul is getting to this when he says, uh, he gave everyone life and breath. And everything else, as some of your own poets have said, we are God's offspring. So what does it mean to be made, as it says in Genesis 1, in the image of God, before the face of God, as mirror with God? Is this uh, some sort of cognitive capacity, our our ability to be rational beings? Yes, I I think that it is. Is this some sort of uh, moral ability, the, the capacity to have a conscience? Yes, I think it is, but I think it is so much more than that. It isn't just something that we have. It's something that we are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with you and me in mind to be in relationship, to have relationship with our creator. In other words, we are most 
fully alive as human beings when we are most deeply connected in relationship with our God. What does that relationship look like? Is God a family therapist? Or is God uh, an encyclopedia that we ask all of our theological questions to? Or is God our personal assistant that just comes uh, to our every beck and call? No, God is subject and we are his objects of affection. And the most rightly ordered relationship with this God doesn't actually first start with friendship. It starts with worship. By anthropological definition, you and me are worshipers. One of the other things I love about being in the Bay Area is almost every day, unless it's really foggy, I can look out and I can see the Golden Gate Bridge. And I love that bridge, and I was really fascinated about it early on. I I got into reading a whole lot about the suspension cables and how they handle the wind and the weight and the torque on the bridge. And one of the other things I've I've grown to love over the past couple years is my oldest daughter, Caroline, has uh, picked up the cello. And I love sitting on her couch at night when she's practicing and watching her youthful, nimble fingers uh, work the strings. And I was doing that one night, and I was thinking about the Golden Gate Bridge and the suspension cables, and I was thinking to myself, um, what sort of power would it take to pluck those suspension cables? Well, if you live in California, you know the answer. (laughs) a massive earthquake. But I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking, what would it be like if that Golden Gate Bridge were like a cello and there was some sort of power that could uh, pluck the strings and make uh, deeply resonant music? Well, that is a picture of how you and I are created with heart strings. And those strings get plucked by our worship rightly ordered worship of our creator. And when we are in that frame, in that posture as God's image bearer, it's deeply, deeply resonant in our own souls and it reverberates broadly into our life's work and into our relationships. What's on God's heart? The rescue of God's people. But we can't get to the rescue until we first realize that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with you and me in mind. And we are called to relationship. And that's where everything went wrong. Genesis chapter 3, which has come to be called the fall, is perhaps more aptly named the great break of relationship. Paul looks around, he looks carefully, and he sees all the other objects of worship. The other people and places and things and ideas in our life that pluck at the heartstrings and distract us. The Jesus Storybook Bible, if you read this with your kids, calls uh, this chapter the terrible lie. And it's really a lie that is situated on a bed of smaller lies. And you see this as the serpent is in the garden talking to, uh, to Eve. And um, that first lie that Eve begins to tell herself is that God doesn't really want me to be free. God doesn't want what's best for me. She fails to see that the Garden of Eden is this uh, playground of permissiveness. Eat anything, drink anything, be everywhere, talk, have fun. One thing, one prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that lie takes root and it translates into Eve's in our life into, you know, God doesn't love me 
like I love me. He's withholding something from me. He's withholding his best from me. And then we begin to tell lies, don't we, about ourselves and our situation and our relationship with God. We begin to say, I don't really need God anymore. I can do anything by myself. That's what the serpent was saying to Eve and likewise to Adam. You'll not surely die. You'll be boundless and limitless. The world will become your oyster. Technology has made it so we can work anywhere all the time, so we work everywhere all the time. We don't need God. We have no boundaries. We have no limits. But how is this working for us? See, the core of this lie is the suggestion that being made in the image of God isn't good enough. We need to become gods ourselves. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the thing we want so desperately is to have it all. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, the whole shebang. Bill Moyers, when he talks about this passage, tells the story of when he was a child, he would come home after a walk from school and come to the kitchen, and most days it sounded like a great life. His mom had homemade chocolate chip cookies belly high on the table. And Bill Moyers is reflecting on this story, and he said, imagine what it would be like one day if I walk home and I walk into the kitchen and there are all these cookies on the table, and at the very center of the table is one large cookie, bigger than all the rest. And my mom says, hey, Billy, you can have all the cookies on this table except for that one large cookie. That's the cookie of motherhood. And you can't handle it. (laughs) See, that tree in the middle of the garden In the middle of all those trees is a tree of Godhood. And God is saying, you can't handle it. Is it any wonder that we are freaked out, anxious people? Because we have taken the weight of God's world and put it on our shoulders. And it's crushing us. Our relationship with God is broken, but... God's mission, his passion, is the rescue of his people. How does he rescue them? Well, you hear Paul's words, right? He he tells them that now is the time to repent. You had this altar of an unknown God, all of these things in your life, which were goods, created by God as good, have become gods. You may not even know this about them. It's maybe unknown to you, but it's time to turn around, to do an about face, to get back before the face of God. A year ago, uh, my wife and I had the privilege of going to a Mumford & Sons concert at Berkeley's Greek Theater, which is only about a mile and a half from our house. It looks a lot like the Areopagus, actually. It's uh, this beautiful theater, and we got there late, and um, we couldn't find seats, so we had to kind of stand in the mosh pit about 50 feet from the stage, and it was terrible because we were standing for two hours, and I'm getting too old for this, and I'm complaining because people are spilling stuff and smoking stuff all over me. And uh, all of a sudden, Marcus Mumford comes out with his sons, and they're about his same age, which is actually surprising to me. But anyway, he, he, he comes out on stage, and I say, this is so worth it. I am 50 feet away from the gentleman of the road. Now, you must know I look around and the urban hipster to uh, mustache to flannel shirt 
to male ratio is about one to one to one to one in this audience. And uh, it's a beautiful show, but there's this climax of the show and it's the song, Awake My Soul. And I love Marcus Mumford because you kind of get the raw passion of a tortured soul in his lyrics. And his lyrics are some sort of combination of of scripture and Shakespeare and Steinbeck. And uh, I have no idea what he's saying half the time, but I'm I'm crying in every song, you know. And uh, he, he... He comes up in this song, and if I can foist a narrative on it for just a second, he starts with uh, the words, how fickle my heart and how woozy my eyes. How fickle I am as a frail human being. Why am I doing the things I don't want to do? And why am I not doing the things that I want to do? And how woozy, how dizzying, how disorienting it is to not know truth from lie anymore. And in the midst of uh, what feels like a very broken place, Marcus Mumford walks to the front center of the stage and he holds up his hands and everyone's singing and he says, Awake my soul. We sung this earlier, and the psalmist sing this. And other ways it can be translated, awake my soul, arise my soul, revive my soul, repent my soul. For you were made to meet your maker. You were designed to be most fully alive when you are in relationship with your king, with your creator. So, what does God do in this moment? How does God rescue us? Well, we heard it in Paul's sermon, didn't we? He's appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice. And some of us think to ourselves, well, that's, of course, what's wrong with Christianity. It's so judgmental. And why does it always have to be about judgment? Yet all of us from boardrooms to playgrounds have said at some point multiple times in our lives that's not fair this is not the way it ought to be and in a world of brokenness and oppression and racism and classism and human trafficking and genocide and all the rest don't we need a judgment day where justice will be prevalent where the trees and the psalms will clap their hands and say, well done, bravo, well done, God, your rescue is complete. It's why Martin Luther King Jr. would say, the arc of moral history is long, but it bends to justice. But here is God's grace, isn't it? Because that day was really two days. See, The man that God appointed is Jesus, uh, as Paul would say, in the fullness of time, when the cosmos was pregnant, was Jesus. And Jesus did not come the first time to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. To take the weight of the world back onto God's shoulders where it rightly belongs and to say, stop giving yourselves to these lesser known objects and idols and affections and give yourself back to me and here's how you do it. I give. God loves you, but he lost you and he will move heaven and earth to find you and he does this in his magnum opus at the cross. Well, that is not where 
the story ends. I mentioned God's passion, his pervasive passion is the rescue of his people for the restoration of all things. And you see, we conclude where Paul concludes in his sermon. He gave proof to everyone of this moment by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered. Why? The centerpiece of Christianity, the certification of the crucifixion, but so much more than that, the precursor to the restoration of all things caused people to jeer and sneer. Why? Because in that day, the physical, the material um, was evil and bad. And the whole idea was to escape this world of suffering and brokenness. Philosophy was forged in brokenness. And the philosophies of the day were to get out of here. Who wants to come back? So the Stoics, the philosophers of the Stoa, of the porch, which sat above the agora, above the marketplace, would sit up here and they would look down at the marketplace and all of its brokenness and people and suffering. The Epicureans, the philosophers of the garden, which was adjacent to the marketplace, would be in the garden pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain and sidestepping the brokenness and the chaos of the marketplace. See, the Stoics sat above the suffering. And the Epicureans stepped around the suffering. But Jesus stepped right into the suffering went all the way to death and dismantled it from the inside out to give us restoration to say the principal enemy in the entire world on the planet is death itself and all of the disease and the decay and the suffering through my work will work backwards to a beautiful day of restoration not where we sprout wings and play harps and fly on clouds but where heaven comes to earth and the renewed renewed reality is the restoration of all things your family your relationships, your life's work, nothing is wasted and everything done in Christ matters. What a picture of what's on God's heart. The rescue of his people for the restoration of all things. So I'd conclude with a question. Does your heart match God's heart. We can index that question uh, very briefly just by looking at this story and seeing how Paul came into Athens. Paul is Christian. The word Christian means little Christ. And Paul said in another place, imitate me as I follow after Christ. And we see in Paul's approach to Athens whether or not our heart matches the heart of God. When Paul was in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Do you see what God sees? Do you look out at the Acropolis over Mars Hill, your Mars Hill, your Acropolis? Do you look out over the created world and you say, wow, this is beautiful, but it's broken? Or are you so enamored by the things you've consumed that you don't have the eyes to see anymore what God sees. A beautiful world gone awry, desperately in need of you and your intervention. 
Secondly, do you feel what God feels? Paul was greatly distressed. The word is paroxysm, which is used to describe seizures and epileptic fits, which is to suggest it was um, some sort of uh, radically ambivalent emotion where Paul exhibited a, a, a truthful, righteous indignation and a lacerated heart of empathy. It's much like you might feel when you look at a family member or a friend who is damaging themselves and you look at them and you say, oh, I love you and you're not living the way you should and it is breaking my heart. You see what God sees and does it cause you to feel what God feels? Or do you pursue the more simplistic, pleasant emotions? And finally, do you do what God does? Do you, as Paul did, inject yourself incarnationally into the culture, into ridicule. What is this babbler trying to say? Do you see the beauty and the brokenness? Do you feel an intense, righteously indignant, long-suffering empathy? And does it cause you to so leverage and steward your time and your talent and your treasure that it puts you in position to live a life where nothing is wasted and everything matters? And at the end of the day, God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the master's joy. Let's pray together. God, would you break our hearts for what is on your heart? Those here that may not be Christian, would you grant them uh, the courage to step into the abyss and to recognize that if there is no you, then their origin is accidental and their destiny is incidental and their life doesn't matter. But if there's a you, there's a long-suffering Savior who longs to welcome us home. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.